0: I V M. On the 5th of August 2019, the government of India revoked the special status given to the state of Jammu and Kashmir in the Indian Union. The state is also being restructured into two union territories. These have state assemblies and a lieutenant governor appointed by the union government at the helm of governance. We've seen many articles and discussions since then on the history and legality of Article 370 and its abrogation, on the politics of Kashmir, on law and order, on the suspension of mobile and internet services, human rights issues in Kashmir, and more. In today's episode, we seek to explore how the security situation in Kashmir has evolved since the 1980s and get an important military perspective on the past and future of security in Kashmir. General Atah Hasnain joins us on the Pragati podcast today to share his views on security in the Kashmir Valley and also introduces us to life on the line of control between India and Pakistan. Welcome to the Pragati podcast, a weekly talk show on public policy, economics, and international relations. I'm your host, Pavan Srinath. Lieutenant General Syed Atah Hasnain is a retired Indian military leader and was the co-commander of the Chinar Corps between December 2010 and June 2012. The Chinar Corps is the 15th Corps of the Indian Army and is based in Srinagar and in charge of all military operations in the Kashmir Valley and the adjoining line of control. Hailing from the Garwal Rifles and from a distinguished military family, General Hassan is a decorated soldier and retired as the military secretary of the Indian Army. We'll start our conversation with General Hassan after a short break
1: hey everybody welcome to another great week on the IVm podcast network if you're not following us on social media please make sure you do We're IVm podcast on Twitter Facebook and Instagram Also like to thank Intel and Storytel for supporting us this month want to welcome a brand new show onto the network. It's called Peak Planet. It's hosted by research fellow and engineer Karthik Ganeshan. In every episode, Karthik discusses sustainability issues that affect Indians through evidence-packed information. In the first season, he dives deep into air pollution and the discourse around it. I think this is especially important given the situation across the country these days. On The Scene and the Unseen, Amit is joined by author and advocate Chitranshul Sinha. They talk about the historical background of the sedition law and discuss Chitranshul's book, The Great Repression. On The Origin of Things, Chuck narrates a story about a man who revolutionized the concept of fuel in Brazil through the Great Depression and World War II. On Edges and Sledges, the guys talk about the T20 match between India and Bangladesh. On Geekfruit, Tejas and Dinkar are joined by the IBM producer Abbas. They talk about the new Terminator film Dark Fate and the past and future of the franchise. On Football Shootball, we have an exciting episode as our hosts discuss the aftermath of the biggest game this season, Liverpool versus Manchester City. It's a Children's Day special on IBM Likes as Madhuri, Alika, Rutika and Abbas talk about pop culture they consumed as children and reflect on how they perceive it now. On GBCD, Sunetra and Farhad share the list of their first, from their first kiss to their first queer experience to the first time queer representation in art moved them. It's a list you definitely don't want to miss. On The Habit Coach, Ashton talks about measuring and visualizing the progress of our habits with the help of paper clips. On the season finale of Keeping It Queer, Naveen and Farhad discuss their understanding of a breakup and how to get over them with maturity. And with that, let's get you on with your show.
0: Hi, I'm Pavan Srinath and welcome to the Pragati Podcast. General Natha it's such a pleasure to have you here in Bangalore on the sidelines of the Bangalore Literature Festival and here on the Pragati Podcast.
2: My pleasure too entirely. I love Daksha Srila, I love Pragati, so I'm very happy to be doing this.
0: General, there is one issue that has been the center of a lot of public discussion And a lot of public noise and a lot of public misinformation over the last few months. And that is uh, what's been happening in Kashmir. And often we also get lost in individual incidents, individual things that have happened. And often we end up spending a lot of time on the politics, legality and those moves. But what I wanted to really uh, take the time to talk with you today is to talk about the security situation in Kashmir of law and order and uh, how it has evolved in the last decade. So uh, you were uh, the head of the Chenar Corps almost a decade ago now. Yes, about nine years ago. That's right. And uh, it was a time where there was a lot of optimism. Uh, There was peace uh, which seemed to be returning to the valley. And uh, Kashmir down south here in Bangalore and elsewhere started becoming a tourist destination again on people's minds. So there was all of that. And we seem to be in a very different place today. So I wanted to, uh, and I think our listeners would love to understand what has happened in the last 10 years and how are we, and where even are we? A lot has happened in the last 10 years. Of course, the time is not static.
2: I've been progressive all along. I won't entirely say that uh, the situation has worsened. But uh, yes, we there have been Ups and downs, and the situation has been extremely dynamic. Having said that, I'd say for the last 30 years, the situation has been dynamic. And let me try and explain to your listeners that such conflicts always go through this kind of a dynamism, when they, especially when they're long drawn out. We, have, we go through a process of what is called initiation, conflict initiation. We move on to conflict progression. We go to a phase of stabilization. We go on to resolution and then we go to termination. That's how we uh, as per the theory of conflict or conflict's progress. Each stage has its own dynamics. And uh, each stage requires handling
0: in its own distinct way. And Where this is from make, the military side, the police and security side and the political side. Absolutely, also. from all three dimensions.
2: Where people generally tend to go wrong in such conflicts is they tend to treat each state as the same. The best way to understand it is if conflict initiation started, let's say, 89. And let's peg it, although you can't peg dates in this. Let's say initiation was sometime to the period of about 92 or so, when the foreign terrorists started coming in in a bigger way. I would say that was the time when you required to use hard power in a very big way. Soft power okay, a lower priority. I would say go to the extent of the ratio being something to the tune of 80% hard power and 20% soft power. But as you progressed... Uh, you came into progression, you came close to stabilization, and each st- stage can stretch out a lot. You did not change a strategy. You continued using hard power. Right. Where some progress was made was in 1996, I think was a very crucial year, when we had elections. Uh, democracy was reintroduced. I think was a great idea. Prime Minister Narsimha Rao's time, then the decision was taken, and the implementation was when the time when Prime Minister Vajpayee had to come to power. The next very next year 1997 we started operations above and uh, that was the first time of recognition that uh, the informal way in which the army was doing its hearts and minds game. There was a requirement to do some to give it a formal touch. So funds started flowing in a concept was created and progressively that has improved. So I'll say a lot of things have been done in the past to understand this. But each time somehow the progress has not been continuous. The biggest enemy of uh, progress in Kashmir has been continuity,
0: Right.
2: where commanders have come, personalities have come, done tremendous work there. And the whole thing, we've seen it roll back after a couple of years. I recall the time of General Patankar in 2001, 2002, 2003, a very, very, uh, very positive period when he started this uh, outreach to the people. He understood the whole game extremely well carried on with General Nirbhai Sharma's time, the one who was the governor of uh, Mizoram, if you remember. These these were all very dynamic. We've had some great commanders there. And uh, even from the political side, see the insight which people like Prime Minister Vajpayee had when uh, he went on the 18th of April 2003 and gave out that very famous line of his on Kashmiriyat, Jamburiyat, Insaniyat. When he was asked this question that how would you like to address the issue of Kashmir hereafter. And he said that he would like to do it in Saniyat Ke Dairee Mein. If you remember, in the whole, in the whole specter or the, the entire circle of humanity, he would like to do it. These, these were great things. This is how such conflicts have to be resolved. Because what people in India, the general public in India doesn't understand, and even many academics don't understand, is that these conflicts are not conventional conflicts. These are hybrid in nature. There's a military dimension to the extent that there's a use of weaponry by the terrorists, violence, without any qualms. There is an element of trying to make sure that the population remains alienated. There's an attempt to make sure that the population's self-esteem and dignity is compromised. There's a system by in place by which finances are available through all kinds of networks. Right? There's a dimension through which weapons, wherewithal, IED material, everything is being brought in. Right. And then there's a dimension of ideology. It is all these combined together which make such a hybrid conflict. If you only address one dimension and that is the terrorist, you will kill terrorists in hundreds. But at the end of the day, you will still be killing terrorists and nothing more. This is what I realized in 2010 when I went back as the co-commander. Not to say that people before me had not realized it, some outstanding commanders. My one thing which realization was that what is really required in this conflict, number one, is the return of dignity and self-esteem to the people, having traveled 20 years till that time and having stabilized the situation to a very great extent, awaiting a political initiative when the army has brought an element of stability to the situation. We need to progress this through return of self-esteem and dignity to the people. That can only be done by direct outreach to the people the other thing was that while this is happening, there must be no cutbacks on uh, the targeting of the terrorists, counter infiltration on the line of control to prevent human resources coming in and adding to the numbers which are there. The numbers game was very important. Uh, go after the financial networks, go after the ideological networks. But somehow these things didn't happen, except the hearts and minds game, which was in my hands, which I could do at that time. So. Um, I primarily we we looked at it from this angle. My commanders and I we looked at it from this angle, that uh, Sadbhavana had played a f- classic role here. We needed to take Sadbhavana to a higher level. Right. Sadbhavana was all about goodwill through education, opening a we opened forty-three excellent goodwill schools, uh, medical assistance to the people. There was a dearth of medical uh, assistance available to the people. The national integration issues were brought to the fore. Uh, sports and games were brought in uh, the issue of uh, small level infrastructure. I can give you a classic example and that is that no no government school in Kashmir or in Jammu for that matter had toilets for girls. Wow, See, gender sensitivity was just not there. Where does a, where does the girl child go if she needs to go to the toilet? And I am proud to say that it is only the Indian army which recognized this. And actually build, started building toilets for girls. And people said, is this the job of the army? And I, when someone asked me this, I said, absolutely, it is our job. Our job is everything. Our job is because we are the only ones who can bring normality here in Kashmir by addressing every issue which is of concern. Right. It helped. Uh, I would call it uh, the humanization of conflict. We started in 1997 through Sat Mahavna. Came to the fore in 2010, 11, 12, when we undertook this uh, whole thing called the Heart's Doctrine, taking Bhavna to a higher strategic level and playing on the minds of the people to tell them that they were very much a part of India. We needed the Kashmiri people, not just K- Kashmir's territory. Um, we were in with them in heart and mind completely. And they needed to be mainstreamed. And my bottom line, I always said, was that we need the last Kashmiri to say Jahan. In the last Kashmiri says, Jai Hind, we have won. That is victory for us. So we achieved a lot. We, the army achieved a lot. We received good support. Uh, the government was very supportive. The Jamun Kashmir government was also very supportive. But uh, somehow they were, there was a level of reticence um, at the political level. They were not sure that what we in the army were attempting to do was really our job. Right. Uh, whose job was it? who should undertake it and therefore in this game of indecision no one was doing anything except the army and what happened was that after 20 years of conflict a whole generation had grown up who had only seen conflict at their doorstep they had only seen the jackboot they had only seen the checkpoint to go from one place to the other with their parents they saw five checkpoints and their parents being perhaps humiliated by the police and other people um, uh, at different checkpoints this has all gone deep into the into the uh, psyche of the of the kashmiri uh, youth today
0: and it was their only reality thats,
2: the, that's the only reality so this is this is a generation thing which was happening which we needed to we needed to recapture this entire thing and take it back right so I think we achieved a lot by going to the youth uh, doing a direct outreach with the people uh, having a large number of public meetings, which a lot of people accused me were becoming political. I said, there's nothing political about them. This is only to understand each other, explain the situation to the people. And I do recount a particular meeting with the with 400 young people from the University of uh, Kashmir University and the Avantipur Technical University who came to Badami Bagh. For the first time, we found young people coming to the Badami Bagh controlment okay. and uh, speaking at our auditorium. And uh, I gave them the liberty to speak their mind speak on what they wanted. If they wanted to abuse any personality and they wanted to abuse India, abuse the Indian army, they had the freedom to do it. It was my belief that you put give a person a platform and allow all the venom to come out. At the end of it, he feels much more satisfied and it's easier to converse with that individual. This is exactly what happened. They heard me after that. And later we went outside for a cup of tea. At the time we were having tea together. We found uh, many of the young people coming to me for selfies and coming to my other officers and my commanders for selfies. Many of them took autographs on their autograph books and on 500 rupee notes. And uh, many of them came and whispered in our ears, how could they join the Indian army? Okay. Now, you see, this is the awkward thing about which most people don't understand in India. That the Kashmiri lives in a world of confusion. On one side, he's got... He's got immense aspirations. He wants to be an Indian. He wants to be a part of mainstream India. He wants to be like everyone else. He wants to work in a a good city like Bangalore. um, Thrive on the the IT capability of India, etc. And yet, the environment in which he's living doesn't permit him to do it.
0: How to get him out of this? This was the whole idea. And this is at a time where opportunities are increasing for people everywhere else. Absolutely around the world. And we... Uh, in
2: the army, we were actually taking them around under sadbhavana. We were taking them to cities like Mysore, Bangalore, Mysore. We were taking them to the Infosys uh, campus. And when they were seeing all this, they said, "What are they missing out? It's an opportunities in life which they are missing out." We wanted to take bring this aspiration to them and make them feel for it. I think uh, at the end of it, what happened was that a huge hope was created. The Hindi saying which I used to always quote to them. Everyone thrives on hope. If hope is positive, then, then everything keeps going. So we wanted to create that hope. And we wanted to create an environment of positivity. At the same time, what was happening was that 2012, 11-12 onwards, was the onset of social media into Kashmir. Most of other rest of India had already been hit by social media. This is the time when Twitter was making a major entry. Facebook was not so popular, but was becoming popular. And this is what uh, we suddenly found that these were the platforms which the young people in Kashmir suddenly found to bring out their grievances. Those They started with, with genuine grievances, became ideological in nature, got exploited by ideologues, and became political. So the period from about 11, 12 to 16, 17 particularly is a very crucial period in which a lot of things happened. The advent of social media, mobile internet connectivity, the coming of Burhan right? Burhan Wani was a coincidence that Burhanwani uh, somehow got ill-treated at the hands of the Jammu and Kashmir police and went into the bush and he became a charismatic uh, uh, personality around whom who made use effective use of social media and around him a whole movement a youth movement, militant youth movement developed, which was apparently a little different to the Hezbollah Mujahideen. He was a part of the Muslim Mujahideen, but still a little different to it. It did not toe the line completely of, say, Salahuddin, Salim was a and places like that.
0: So this is not a old school, not old school, sort of a more traditional, uh, violent, non-state actor. Absolutely, right? absolutely. outfit with a strong ideological moral. Absolutely,
2: absolutely. and And, and because of social media... And the connectivity which was available and the savviness of the youth. And people like Burhan Mani, who was already being called a Twitter warrior, right? Uh, they could get there, get all these things going together. And uh, violence took an upturn from 2014-15 onwards. Uh, the
0: violence also... What yeah. is the nature of this violence? Yeah. Because the nature changed between the 90s, 2000s and the 2000s. Very, very, very interesting.
2: This is the question which is very important. It started in the 89, 1991 as pure targeting of the military and the police and things like that. It's been a very transitional kind of a thing. It, it ran out of steam by 91, 92, when the local terrorists started um, sort of diluting capability and Pakistan felt this movement could not be sustained. That is the time when the induction of the foreign terrorists started. From Afghanistan, all the um, mercenaries from Tunisia and Algeria and Chechnya who started coming in, okay. this lasted till 1996, when you found the pipeline dried up in 1996, okay. right? We killed a huge number of them through the effective use of hard power. 1996, uh, we suddenly found the advent of the lashkar e taiba So from 96 onward, it became a Pakistan game, purely. Okay. It was all this time, Pakistan sponsoring it, but foreign terrorists. Right. The only foreign terrorists left now was the Pakistani. Okay. So lashkar e taiba from 96 and in 2000 came the Jayashi Muhammad. And you, in between, you had smaller groups like the Al-Badar, uh, Harakatul Ansar, and people like Hugi. that. Who were there?
0: H- was Huji later?
2: Huji was very much part of the, ah. at, at this time itself, right? And their actions were, did not change in any great way, and not ambush here, and not targeting, a criminal acts against someone, so it was nothing very major. They didn't take on the army in any big, very big way. The 1999 was the year in Kargil. North Kashmir got vacated. Right. And, uh, Eight Mountain Dev moved up to Kargil. Three, four months, the space was completely in, uh, in uh, disarray. And that's the time when you found induction of foreign terrorists inside. And suddenly the new thing was start, a new nature of violence was all fedain. Suicide attacks, not suicide bombing, suicide attacks. A lot of difference between the two. Bombers are the ones who come strapped up with the explosives. Attackers are the ones who come prepared to die, but essentially with weapons. Entry was, I think, in so the period, before
0: this the nature was not Fidain. so people would fight and retreat. That's right. That's right. They would and live to fight another yeah, day. Live to fight another day. So they were now, like a militia more. Fidain than,
2: actually escaped. The fidaein thing which happened in 99 was in the form of attacks on posts, entries into camps, fight to the last to the end, kill as many as possible, and die in the in the in the process. That is how it, it carried on, right? And mostly they
0: And this is so important because sometimes so many different kinds of uh, violence and conflict get covered under the umbrella of terrorism. Yes, right? Because sometimes they're organized actually military groups. Correct. That's right. And they engage against other military units. You see, you can understand it from this nature. I have served in Sri Lanka,
1: hmm.
2: and I remember in Sri Lanka, my company—I was a company commander in Sri Lanka—and my company of one hundred and twenty men. There were times when I went out uh, on an operation with 60-65 men and I left behind 30-35 of them and I was worried about my the people who were left behind. If I sent out 30 people outside in my camp, I was sitting in my camp that day, I would be worried about those 30 people who went out because the contact was with 100 entity uh, guerrillas. It was with 150 of them. I We have battled in a particular operation 300 of them. Wow. This is not the kind of thing which we had in Kashmir. Nagaland, we have had that kind of a thing. But in Kashmir, it was in small groups. Okay. The only place where you had slightly larger battles was in the counter-infiltration mode, okay. where when they're trying to infiltrate in large numbers, 15, 20, 30, that is the time which you had a major contact, which okay. lasted for four, five, six days. Um, there was a particular contact in 2008, infiltration, which lasted for the better period, of 25 days to a month, in which all of them were finally killed, but it was a very, very long encounter. So there's been a very dynamic nature. The year 2001 was a very crucial year. We killed 2,100 terrorists that year, which is the highest number in the 30 years. Hmm. Uh, I think your listeners can get the uh, measure of this correctly by comparing that in 2001, there were 2,100 killed. In the year 2018, there were only 254 killed. Okay. That's last year.
0: Right.
2: Right? So you can imagine how the tempo has come down. Right? In the middle of all this, while I explain this a little more, I must... Uh, Admit one thing, on the part of the Indian state, on the part of the Indian army, perhaps the finest decision which was taken, was probably the finest initiative that modern India has taken as far as the Indian armed forces is concerned, was the raising of the Rashtra rifles. The RR was an amazing concept. Otherwise, what would have happened is units would have come, units would have gone. Two years in the CI, train a little bit, be effective, go away. Here you created permanent entities, 63 battalions, men are turned over. Every month men are turning over, but these were 1,100 strong. Uh, The strength of the RR unit is 1,100, all arms mixed up in it together, right? And uh, led by an infantry uh, colonel with a major concentration of 53% of it being from infantry, uh, a very major component being from some other arm like the Armored Corps or the artillery. The whole Indian army got blooded. Very large segment of the Indian army got experience in this. And the RR, the best part is, is permanently there. Intelligence started building up. Their uh, ability to interact with the civil administration, to function with the Jammu and Kashmir police, these are the things which which, which work in counter and counter-terrorist situations. So
0: they became a permanent institution. The institution there itself. And their mandate was not on the line of control, right? That's, no. That remained with the army. They remained, that remained with the army. So their mandate was... Company. Mandate
2: was entirely hinterland. Their job was not even counter-infiltration. It's counter-insurgency. It is counter-insurgency. Or now what is called counter-terrorism. Primarily that. Right? And if you remember that uh, the arc of terrorism spread south into Jammu. So you found that as the initially the RR had 36 units raised. Subsequently, 27 more were added. So you had about two-thirds of the RR in Kashmir and one-third of it in, in south of the Pir Panjal in the Jammu region. Primark. So I thought this must be mentioned because we can't only keep saying that uh, uh, there were changes in terrorist terrorist uh, tactics. The Indian Army was uh, making tremendous uh, changes based on uh, experiments which were happening from time to time. One classic experiment which has become a huge success was in the time of General Nirmal Ridge as the Army Chief. Now it's an interesting thing to note that in the year 2001, we killed 2,100 terrorists, but by infiltration, probably 2,500 came in. Okay. So this was a phenomenon every year. Averagely you killed 14, 1,500 terrorists. 16, 1,700 came in. So the end of the year the mathematical uh, figure was always in favor of the terrorists. Right. How do you change this? In 2003, General Widge gave a direction. He said, we will work towards bringing the strength of terrorists to below 1,000. At that time it was something to the tune of 5,000 or more. So with a single-minded purpose we went after this. One of the ways of doing it was the construction of the line of control fence, the LOC fence, right, which also came to be known as the anti-infiltration obstacle system, the AIOS. It became a system by itself. It took the better part of one year, nine months to construct it. 1150 crore rupees were spent on this. It's not an easy small sum of money. And the kind of areas which were, you know, fenced off, this created a major problem for the, for the infiltration. And the, the army now had a line on which to concentrate hmm. and the infiltration figures started falling. From the high of 15, 16, 1700 in the year that 2011 that I was commanding the core, um, I can, I say with great pride, the lowest figure, 42. Wow. That is all who could, could come through.
0: So what, so was what happened a, was the mathematics got reversed. Right. So what was a f- yearly flow issue became a flow has reduced, now manage the uh, Absolutely. That's the
2: thing. That is how the strength of terrorists from a high of six, 7,000 in the early part of the millennium has come down to 350, 400 today.
0: Okay.
2: Although the number of units here are still the same. Right. right. Um, it is a flawed thinking on the part of anyone to say that you need to reduce the strength of the troops. If the strength of the terrorists is reduced, it's incorrect thinking. Because you must remember that a particular area which you have stabilized, if there is no terrorist presence there, it doesn't matter. The RR must stay there. It must ensure that that area remains stable. The re-entry of the terrorist is not there at all, right? So, in this manner, this whole the dynamics of, of violence continued changing. 2008, the major change took place. By 2008, the strength of terrorists had been reduced quite drastically because of the fence. Mm-hmm. That is the year when uh, they gave a call for uh, the Amanach shrine board agitation, and with that agitation the whole struggle went to the streets. They realized the power of the stone. And the Intifada 1, Intifada 2 of Palestine was brought in, the model was brought in. Uh, The non-violent revolutionary uh, kind of a thing was adopted, although you can hardly, I mean, stone throwing is hardly non-violent, but uh, in comparison to the use of a bullet, it's supposed to be relatively non-violent. So suddenly you found the emergence of mobs. And uh, the army was not prepared for it. The police was not prepared for it. We were hesitant about firing on mobs, etc. And you found in the year 2010, 117 people were killed on the streets.
1: when
2: hmm. the mobs managed to isolate police uh, pickets or a few policemen somewhere and the policemen were forced to fire on them. And that is how people were killed. That led to a tremendous amount of alienation. I stepped into Kashmir in that alienation in 2010. I remember. And that is one of the reasons why I particularly went on to this high drive on on reaching out to the people at that time. That brings me to 2015. Mm. By the year 2015, the lessons learned from the agitation somehow taught the separatist leaders that uh, they could they could paralyze Kashmir through the street. So the dynamics of street agitation. Okay. So they started a new thing. Anywhere there was a terrorist uh, holdup. And if the army got uh, wind of it through intelligence and the army started building up for it, there would be a call given on mobile, internet or anything else. Connectivity was used for it and a more flash mob would develop around that village, around that site and prevent the army, the police and the CRPF from closing in. But this created a massive challenge for us because without killing civilians, you couldn't kill a terrorist. And the job of the CRPF became extremely difficult because they are the ones who had to prevent the mob from interfering with the operations of the army and the German Kashmir police. But to the twist credit, all three security forces got their act together, did a lot of brainstorming on it. Uh, The Unified Command was used for this very, very effectively. And SOPs were drawn up. And somehow they managed to get the better of the situation uh, at that time. But 2014-15 onwards, this was the kind of a narrative in the security environment till about 2017.
0: So it was not just stone pelting, but it was also about blocking. Absolutely,
2: absolutely. absolutely. Two th- in fact, the loop came in 2016 after Burhanmani's killing, after the Udi attack, eighteen um, September, after the Nagrota attack. By the time we came to the end of 2016, for the first time, we found that the ratio of uh, the terrorists killed to the number of soldiers lost had come to one is to one. Which is the worst possible ratio you can ever have? I mean, we were at a high of one is to nine, one is to ten, and we suddenly came down to one is to one. I think the army did a tremendous amount of soul searching, uh, went back to the drawing board, and I started looking at things all over again. And that is the time when Operation All Out was launched. Okay. Which was uh, all three elements. So two thousand sixteen. Two thousand seventeen. Beginning of seventeen. So beginning of seventeen till to end till end of two thousand eighteen. Operation All Out. Even, even Operation All Out carried on into 2019 also to some extent. But these two years was a high mark with Operation All Out when the, armed, the security forces managed to retrieve the situation and we came back to a, I can't exactly recall the ratio, but to a much more reasonable ratio of number of soldiers lost to the number of terrorists killed. And this is also the time when you suddenly found uh, the entry of disparate groups. For example, you suddenly found the ISIS emerging there. Zakir Musa and people like that emerging not even not from the ISIS more of Al-Qaeda right and you found the Al-Qaeda making noises about the Al-Qaeda in in South Asia right AQISA used to call it right Uh, all of them were giving out these calls because they knew that Kashmir is a turbulent zone and in, in terrorism there's an element of romanticism always involved where major terrorist groups would always want to show as if their presence is there actually the ISIS is hardly present they are there more for the sake of um, red herrings right. than anything else. And
0: it is almost sort of franchise, right? Anyone can make an ISIS flag and flight and claim to exactly. be. ISIS. This is so exactly. So you self identify as
2: somebody Absolutely. Who is... In fact, many times people used to say, when I used to speak to a lot of locals, which I spoke to later, told me that the whole purpose of this was to actually tease the Indian army. To actually send out a message to the Indian army see, you have killed the so and so and so, but the ISIS is here. And this has become transnational now. This whole thing has gone to the Middle East, it's gone to Afghanistan and things like that. that. That is really not entirely true. But there is one thing which is very clear. The ideological content of this entire conflict continuously increased from 2001, maybe a little earlier than that, right till now. Because as I told you, one of, the thing which drives a uh, 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 hybrid conflict, which is now these days being called a grey zone conflict, a hybrid conflict is driven by four major things. One is the human resources, which is the terrorist, the supporter, overground worker who's above ground and working everywhere, but working for the terrorist, uh, the financier, media people, etc. Politicians. The second aspect is the wherewithal, the grenade, the weapon, the ammunition, the IED. The third is ideology. And the fourth is the financial network. These are the things which go together. The fifth thing is the people. Now, if you paralyze these four and get the people on your side, you are the winner, right? Somehow, conceptually, most security forces, what they do is they put a tremendous amount of emphasis on the human resource side of it. In it against the terrorist, not so much against the overground worker. Hmm. Because against the overground worker, you've got to do a lot of legal footwork. When you arrest a person, you got to produce him in court and things like that. Uh, you got to work with the judiciary. you got to work with the local police. It's, it's, a, it's a cumbersome procedure. Um, in terms of ideology, countering the ideology is one of the most difficult things because half the time, who is left to counter the ideology? The state government doesn't even understand the, the importance of ideology. Uh, it's not being understood at the highest level at the center in those years. In those years. It is only the army which is trying to battle ideology. How does the army battle ideology? The army doesn't have an understanding itself. Right? For example, most of the valley, how did the mosques change hands from the Sufi content? How did they suddenly become the la Hadith or the Wahhabi content? It happened right under our noses, all of us. Um, Most of us kept reporting. We never realized the importance of it. And nothing much was done to to, to counter it. Today, we are all aware of it. We are trying to do it. We really don't know how to do it. Right, we have to we have to do this through the information warfare game. We've got to do it on social media and all kinds of things which have, we have we have to do. Right, I think where we have succeeded in the last few years, particularly this government coming to power, uh, the realization has been much more is on financial networks. The NIA has gone after them. They've uh, stopped the Jammu and Kashmir Bank from being exploited, as an excellent bank otherwise, being exploited locally by the politicians, by the overground workers, etc. Um, lots of money coming in by by um, very very legitimate means like Western Union money transfer and all from the Middle East and all. All this is now under a tremendous amount of surveillance and control. Then um, the wherewithal, of course, much of it comes from across the line of control. But because of the infiltrate counter infiltration efforts, that is also there is a reasonable amount of. Uh, control on this.
0: So, in Kashmir, has there been, I mean, there must have been concerted efforts by various groups to recruit locally as well. Absolutely. absolutely. So, how has that evolved and to what extent there is? Because uh, very, we very can good. stop the flow as much as we want. Very but good. If recruitment in Very good
2: question. Um, to put this in context, 2018, when I was saying that we killed 254 terrorists, 190 got recruited from South Kashmir. Young ones. Okay. 190. We'll be killed 254. 190 got recruited. And you're, you're absolutely right in your question. 75 confirmed infiltration. Okay. So, 265 got created out of 254 killed. Right. So, you came back to square one. Yeah. So, this game can carry on forever. What is important is while you're addressing, you have to address recruitment. This year has been pretty good that way. Because of the efforts of Operation All Out um, and a little more focused uh, targeting against recruitment... Until thirtieth June, only forty-seven had been recruited. Okay. Only forty-seven. I'm not sure of the figures thereafter. Them, I don't think the figures have gone up too high because terrorist acts have reduced overall, and with mobile connectivity particularly having been brought down, you found that the movement of messaging and ideological mapping of networks getting together that has all taken a downturn. Right.
0: right. So, but fear is always that because this has been paused. Because, you know, people are not able to... So more to, people are going to join in. Maybe once it all bubbles up and it, if this becomes fresh trauma for... You see, this most
2: years. of the recruitment in 2017-18 took place uh, very interestingly at the funerals of local terrorists. Right. Wherever you found three local terrorists have been killed, three different places, funerals are taking place, you will find the 10 or 12 villages which are around them. They are the ones who are coming there. You will find the youth, few people coming there, swearing, taking an oath and going to the bush the same day and uh, joining the ranks of the terrorists. Now, this was becoming a phenomenon everywhere. Uh, With a lot of uh, involvement of the local police, Jamun Kashim police has done a tremendous amount of work on this. With their involvement and their outreach to the people, this started reducing. Then the terrorists suddenly undertook a new kind of a, a strategy in 2018, targeting um, Jammu Kashmir police personnel and Jammu Kashmir light infantry personnel from the army on leave, okay. so that recruitment into the army stops. Right. Otherwise, you know, if it would be very interesting for your listeners to know that every time we open up 200 vacancies for the Jammu Kashmir light infantry, there are 9,000 subscribers for it. Okay. To come and join it. To discourage that, to discourage people from joining the police, because this, by joining the CRP or the BSF, they started targeting these people in their homes. Lieutenant Umar Fayaz was killed in the month of April or May 2018. Right? That was a primarily a message. No one should try to become an officer in the Indian Army. Right. So this is all part of psychological warfare. It's right. all part of information and psychological. So
0: Pulwama was also a culmination of this mode of... This whole entire thing which reached
2: up to a culmination in 14th of February... I
0: think Pulwama was a bit
2: of an overplay on the part of the mentors and the sponsors on the other side. You must remember that in this conflict, it's very important for Pakistan to always keep whatever is happening, to keep it below a particular threshold. Pulwama crossed that threshold. Yes, Perhaps it was a little erroneous appreciation that they did. Because the mo- no Indian government is going to tolerate, and particularly a government of this nature, more nationalistic in nature, is not going to be able to tolerate the killing of 40 policemen um, in, a, in an ID like this. Right. God forbid if it happens again tomorrow, and it can very well happen anytime, you will find that there will be tremendous pressure in the government and the government will be forced to do something again, something different as far as the the uh, you know the, the entire threshold of violence is concerned and the, the escalation. escalation ladder is concerned will be something completely different. Right. This, so the, these are these are very interesting and important facts which should we be, don't your be discuss.
0: So um, General Hasnain, to sort of wrap this discussion up, how do you see the nature of the security concerns in Kashmir going forward now, as there is a new political reality? Um, How would we think about it? One, the government administrative machinery will be a little different now. We'll have a Lieutenant Governor uh, who has to work along with the state assemblies, uh, but the army's job remains the same. The army has not been restructured in the area. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. The unified
2: command will now come, I think, probably under the Lieutenant Governor instead of under the Chief Minister. Okay. To my mind, why go the Lieutenant Governor as the director? Of course, the governor was also the representative of the president. But now with the union territory status, law and order mm. becomes a union subject. Right. right? right. The, the, the the army, as it is, whenever never reported to the state government. The army reported always to the army headquarters or always reported to the, to the union government. But now with the law and order becoming a, a, a union subject, you will have a direct oversight from Delhi. Mm. And the state itself will play a far more marginalized role in this. This will, this will be to the advantage, particularly to the army. Major advantage. Um, although I always believe that uh, it is the unity of effort of the Jammu Kashmir police, all the police forces and along with the army. The army can never function alone. Right. Legally, uh, people should know that under the under ASPA, under ASPA, there is a direction with the Supreme Court also. Uh, under a thing called the do's and don'ts given by the by the uh, supreme court in 1997 that the army will not conduct any operation without the presence of local police okay except in a 15 kilometer belt of the line of control That's where you may not have presence of local police there the army is free independent to do its operations but everywhere else hmm. uh, the army will conduct operations with a representation of the police even a single policeman has to be present there with okay. you to oversee operations of this of this nature, right? So this this will continue. Of course, I'm hope that the unity of effort, the jointness will will continue completely. Um, I do feel that uh, with with the financial networks having taken a hit hmm. and continuous efforts going on to dismantle them, hmm. what is going to happen is that money is going to run out. Okay, and therefore the kind of uh, controls, the kind of Things which uh, terrorists could do in terms of recruitment, in terms of payouts to um, so-called martyrs of the of the terrorists and things like that, these things will all take a backseat. Okay. Always in most terrorist uh, situations around the world, the moment money dries up, the situation starts improving. You take uh, the situation in the Middle East. The moment the Mosul refinery mm. stopped producing, the ISIS, its money started diluting.
0: Right,
2: And it started frittering away. A before that, 40,000 fighters from all over the world were being supported from $1 million a day was being produced from the Mosul refinery for the ISIS. So money is a very important aspect to this. The second thing is, I think India is getting very serious about its counter-radicalization efforts.
1: Hmm.
2: Although they're not very visible, and it's not good to be visible also, publicly it may not be visible. I think these efforts are going on, experimentation, and a lot of things are happening. There's a lot of things happening on the social media aspect. Recognition has come that we are far behind Pakistan on the information and the influence game. Right. The ISPR, inter Services Public Relations of Pakistan, raised in 1949, um, has, has taken made great strides in information warfare and they got the better of us in most times. Right. We have now realized it. I think the government has realized it, all agencies have realized it, and everyone is putting his heads together to play the information game more professionally. I hope this is going to make a difference in the next couple of years, right? And uh, to me, the most important thing continues to remain counter-infiltration. We can't allow terrorists to come in, right? And um, I was very fascinated by General Rawat's uh, um, statement and possibly a change of strategy where he said, why should you allow them to come inside? You should target them at their bases and at their... Uh, launch pads. That is how on the Neelam Road in certain areas, the launch pads were targeted. We made claims of kills. I'm not sure how much of them, of that was absolutely genuine, but we targeted them. I hope this will continue. Mm. I hope this will continue. Why should you fight your terrorists on your your territory? You might as well fight him on your territory, which you claim, uh, on which the enemy is sitting. You might as well target him there. So I hope there'll be some change in this. Um, The next part of it is that Technology, this, this warfare is all about technology. It may seem to be small-scale warfare, uh, proxy warfare here and there, but everything here depends on technology. The monitoring systems, the surveillance systems, how you gather your intelligence, how you quickly you respond, the use of UAVs, the use of drones for the security of your convoys, uh, for the, for the um, surveillance over your forested areas. These are the kind of things which are going to make a huge difference. And I think this realization is coming in in a very big way. I do foresee, I think this winter will be a winter of reasonable peace. Next year, Pakistan is not going to sit back. Pakistan is going to take drastic measures. They will review the situation like any other military does anywhere in the world. And they'll come up with a set of fresh measures as to how to create that upsurge again. Uh, are they looking at a trigger such as Pulwama once again to create this kind of a, a turbulence in the minds of, of people? I think only time will tell as to where we are going to be heading in that manner.
0: We have spent the first half of the episode today with General Hasnain getting a military perspective on the security challenges in Kashmir. We'll be back after a short break to talk about the line of control, not its strategic role or its deep history, but on how diverse the single border is and what life is like for soldiers serving on the LOC. Hi, I'm Sari Unet Rajan. And I'm Alok Prasanna Kumar. And we are the hosts of the Ganatantra Podcast. On this podcast, we speak to academics, social scientists, journalists and activists to find out what's actually going on in Indian politics. On this podcast, we stay away from personality politics, intrigue and gossip and instead focus on the data, research and analysis that drives all this. So tune in to the Ganatantra Podcast, where new episodes are out every Wednesday on the IVM Podcast app, website, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, uh, General Hasnan, I wanted to also talk to you about the line of control. Now, the line of control, from a strategic point of view, from uh, various points of view, keeps coming in the news. But I think most of us in India don't have a very good sense. Uh, those who are not in the army don't have a very good sense of. What this line of control is and what the rest of the international border with Pakistan is like. And uh, so if you could tell us a little bit about the fence and the life of soldiers who make tours there, um, what's that like? I mean, what's that environment like? From a tactical point of view, from a security point of view, from a life point of view, for a for a soldier who's say spends a month there or so,
2: I'm glad that you have actually brought up this issue because I think uh, the public in India is unaware. And while uh, we in the army would always like to keep things under wraps, there is an element of public information which is also essential,
0: which does not compromise national compromise security, national in, security
2: any. in any way. The first issue is what is the line of control. You see from Sir Creek in the Gujarat uh, area till uh, around Katwa, there is no dispute anywhere on the line of control or on the on the international border. This is the old Radcliffe line which was created for the division between India and Pakistan. And this, for all are, its problems? It's, it's, it's Absolutely. And it's surveyed. It's got border, border pillars everywhere. There is responsibility divided out between India and Pakistan as to who will maintain which border pillar. Okay. The manning of the international border is not done by the army. It is done by the border security force in the form of uh, what are called border outposts or BOPs. And these are more for the purposes of uh, retaining the, the sanctity of the international border, uh, preventing smuggling of any kind, human smuggling, contraband, etc. and general surveillance on the international border. The army remains in its peace cantonments trains in the areas near the international border, in Rajasthan, in Punjab, or in Gujarat. And only under war conditions or under conditions of mobilization, will they move up to their war deployment areas, and the BSF in that case will redeploy and come under the army. Okay. This is the system on the international border.
0: So, Operation Parakram would
2: be the last time time it
0: happened. That happened at a large scale. Absolutely.
2: Now, from Katwa, up to Jammu is also a segment of the international boundary. Which we in India call the IB. Everywhere else we also call it the IB. But Pakistan does not call it the IB. They call it the working boundary. okay, Or what is called WB. The reason for it is we in India think that that part of the boundary is a settled boundary. It has nothing to do with any disputes or anything like that. Right. But Pakistan thinks that, perceives that this boundary also has to be settled. Because this is a part of the Jammu state. Okay. Jammu-Kashmir state. Right. This is actually that segment of the boundary, which is the boundary between the erstwhile Punjab state
0: Hmm.
2: and Jammu and Kashmir. Before partition. Right. So... It's an awkward thing, but we consider it to be a settled border. They don't consider it to be a settled
0: border. And uh, I think they also hope to use it as a strategic chip, right? That we will recognize this as an international Interestingly, border. this is the
2: area where firing has taking place in the last two, three days also. This is the area where from 2015 to 2018, the maximum firing has taken place in this area. This is the Hindu dominated area. Um, as a part of Pakistan's strategy, they targeted the Hindu villages to um, evict the population from there which would create communal turbulence in Jammu and Kashmir and rest of India. This was the whole intention behind it. The second thing of this, this part of the boundary, 121 kilometers, is that this is not the area where terrorism was in any big way, uh, it had manifested in any big way. All over Jammu and Kashmir, and Kashmir Valley, in the Punch Rajari area, our infiltration, counter-infiltration grid is very strong. So penetration from that, through that grid, to come and do a major terrorist act, they may take you three weeks, four weeks, six weeks. But here, on this segment of the border, only the BSF is deployed. Right. And the strategic road from Pathanakot to Jammu is only 10 to 12 kilometers from the border. Okay. And if a group of four, five terrorists manages to penetrate through the fence, reach the road by one o'clock at night, then they easily can hijack a vehicle on that very busy road. Right. And um, their scope of being able to move right or left goes to 40, 50, 70 kilometers. That is how you had uh, the terrorist attack at Katwa. You had a terrorist attack at Samba, um, and Gurdaspur by penetration through the Ravi riverbed and things like this. So this is a very important segment which has emerged over the last couple of
0: years. So in a sense... Pakistan is opening a new front for infiltration and therefore it's actually an escalation by...
2: Actually, not only from that angle, it is also connected to Punjab. Right. North Punjab and now with Kartarpur happening.
0: Hmm. The whole
2: intent of Pakistan is how to expand the arc, the arc which they have not successfully expanded into Jammu at the moment, how to connect it up with Punjab, northern Punjab, Gurdaspur to uh, Padankot, this area. A very porous area, particularly because of the Ravi Riverbed, which is very difficult to fence. The Home Ministry, of course, has created a new fencing system for that whole area at the moment. So we were at um, the IB. Now, what is the LC, line of control? The army likes to call it LC. The civilian world calls it the LOC. They are the same thing. This is the line on which the Indian army stopped in 1947-48. 40, right. Um, When the ceasefire came on the 1st of January 1949, this is where the Indian Army stopped. And uh, de facto, that that became the line of control. And it was subsequently delineated, designated and delineated. It is surveyed from point to point, although there are no border pillars here. Right. Uh, surveyed by both sides. Both sides. Now, uh, there are two, three differences here. Number one, the army man's this, not the BSF. Hmm. And the army man's it not sitting uh, 500 meters, one kilometer, two kilometers behind. It man's it right there on the line of control. Okay. The sanctity is very important. You cannot lose a piece of, ter- you can't lose even an inch of territory here. And um, there is a notion here. On the other side also, of course, Pakistan mans it similarly, so we are eyeball to eyeball. When you say eyeball to eyeball contact, this is what it really means. And we also have a notion here, which is called grabber's keepers. He who grabs a piece of territory tends to keep it, unless the other person evicts him from there. So it means 24, 7, 365 days of the year, you had better be alert
0: doesn't matter what weather, what climate,
2: nothing. Your 20 kilometers, 14 kilometers, 11 kilometers segment which is given to your unit to hold, there cannot be a compromise on one inch of territory in that.
0: And this line is not natural in any way. Not at all. Like in other places when there is mountainous territory, we talk about the the highest watershed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. There is no such thing at all. It
2: cuts across the grain of the
0: territory. So there will be places in which our location is ex- at an extreme disadvantage and vice versa.
2: Absolutely. But somehow, it's a quirk of fate, most of the places in Kashmir, the advantage is with us. Okay. Mostly. Okay. So having said this... Same with higher up in Kargil than. Yeah. This line of control goes from just above Akhnur. Travels uh, up from Rajar- from Noshera, Rajari. These are the famous landmarks. Raj- Noshera, Rajari, Punch... Punch on to Gulmarg on the other side. Udi. Mm-hmm. From Udi on to the Lipa Valley. Lipa Valley to Tangdhar. Or the famous, very famous Lilam Valley. Where operations are going on in the last few days. From Nilam Valley to Keran. Karen to Gurez, From Gurez into Mashko. And from Mashko going to Kargil. And leading on short of the Siachen Glacier. Right. Into a place called Turtuk. So this is how it travels all the way.
0: So um, it goes from... What, maybe 500 meters above sea level all the way to... But to
2: uh, height of approximately... Well, Chor Batla is about 17,000 feet. Wow. And from 17,000 again comes down to Turtuk, which is about uh, 11,000 so feet. So
0: even a deployment for a soldier on the line of control actually can mean very different things. Oh, yes, yes. yes. So it depends well, on your sector. Absolutely.
2: On... I mean, there is no uniformity about it. We have constructed the LOC fence, as it's called, right from Akhnoor till... Uh, a place called Kabul Gali uh, which is the mainly the Jammu and the Kashmir segment not in the Kargil and the other area because this is the prime area for infiltration. Now the fence which is constructed in the Jammu segment that's up to Punj is very very robust because um, it's deep, it's high, it's electrified, it's got illumination and everything and it doesn't get eroded while uh, this the fence in the in the Kashmir segment Every year, thirty thirty-five percent of it comes and gets submerged by slope. Okay. So, in the month of April and May, there's a race to reconstruct the fence. Right. And we have to pre-position the stores for the reconstruction well before, because the roads are all closed. You, the roads, the vehicles can't move up. So, it's a management. It's a whole exercise of management: how to pre-position your stores, what percentage of uh, of the fence is going to get eroded, how quickly your working parties can come up there, where to get the engineers to do it. This is a whole study in management, which which is
0: done every year. And on the Pakistani side, they hope to use that window to get through. Absolutely. Hmm. For them, the most
2: lucrative time to get through is now. Like at the moment that we are recording on the the Mm. 9th of November, there has been a snowfall in Kashmir. Early snow Hmm. this year, right? Now, at the moment, the snow is soft. Uh, Not so deep, not so high. uh, Levels are not so high. And therefore, that there is no threat of avalanche yet. So, this is a time when they think that the army would be on less alert. Although the Indian army is always on a high alert. And there will be att- repeated attempts to try and
0: infiltrate mm-hmm. at this particular time. And so, here could you also tell us about, so we have this uh, line of control. How far away are the civilian populations on either side from this line? Because that uh, becomes so critical. Again, there
2: is no uniformity about that. I know a particular area, in the Leeper Valley, where you are close to 40 kilometers away. There is no no, uh, habitation within 40 kilometers, except for maximum the shepherds. Hmm. The grazing grounds, Which uh, in summer, the shepherds come from down below, and they do their grazing in summer. Those are not permanent settlements. These are temporary summer settlements. Um, There are areas in Udi, which are bang on the line of control. There are villages which are bang on the line of control. There are villages in the OD segment where the fencing has been made, and some part of the village is actually in front of the fence. On the other side, right? Because it because it is I mean it's very dangerous. We could not construct it because so much of firing was going on at that time. We couldn't even construct it at that point. So some of the fence part of the fence had been constructed slightly behind. That is why right. life on the on the line of control for a unit for the men on the unit. Um, It's all a question of um, time management. One of the most important things, is time management at night, you have to be alert. You have to be along the line of control fence, ambushes, surveillance parties, patrols, everything is there morning. Everyone may think that if you're working at night, then the whole day you can sleep. That That can't be possible. There are daylight patrols, there are LC patrols, as they are called. There are logistic parties which can involve as mundane a thing like fetching water.
0: Mm.
2: Water schemes are not existent everywhere. So there's a problem. You may be having to fetch water in certain places. Then there's the maintenance of the post, maintenance of the minefield, maintenance of the line of control fence. Um, One of the major things today is charging of batteries. Hundreds of batteries for equipment that you're holding. That all needs to be charged by day. So there's a whole battery charging node in certain areas. So these are the kind of activities which go on all the time. Then there's winter stocking. Um, you'll find trains of mules, porter loads coming up kerosene oil, your atta, dal, chawal, everything is coming up. You are stocked for 180 days. Straight. All of
0: these are places which roads <clears throat> cannot reach. So you, your last mile has to be... has to be on foot. Hmm. Most of them, but most almost
2: almost 90 percent has to be on foot. So, so, the Indian Army employs mules. We employ mules. We, we have some of our own animal transport of the mm-hmm. ASC. We've got mules, local mules, very hardy mules, and a very large set of porters. Okay. For which we get funds, which we have. we pay them. Um, a porter is paid almost, I'm not sure today, how much it must be, at least 300 rupees a day. 300, 350 rupees a day. And many of these people are high-altitude porters. It's not easy for someone coming from the plains to lug that kind of a load. 20 kilos load to be lugged from let's say 4,000 feet to 13,000 feet is not an easy job. So sometimes they get more money for that. Addition funds for that. So it's a very, very busy life. If you've got ceasefire, that is, you can be hunky. I mean, the life is much better. You don't have to be so alert about coming in a fire. But if the ceasefire is not there, and ceasefire, breaches of ceasefire can take place anywhere. Then, um, then obviously you have to be that much more careful in terms of being ready to respond or doing something proactively as per your design of your own commander, right? from time to time. Right? Uh, the alert at all levels has to be extremely high. You have to be careful about sniping. This is a, this is a new game on the, on the line of control. A lot of sniping is being done by Pakistan. We are doing the same also. Which means that the construction of your defenses has to be such that at no stage do you expose yourself to snipers. Which means all your vulnerable areas, your lanterns and your cookhouses and rest areas and everything has to be under cover, proper cover. That's the kind of thing.
0: And when you earlier mentioned eyeball to eyeball, so does it go as low as what, 200, 300 feet that you're... Oh, well, I have, I have
2: gone and spoken to the Pakistani troops at a distance of 20 yards. Okay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone on top of a bunker and I've called the Pakistani officer on the other side and you'd be surprised. He came out and he came and saluted me. And saluted him back, wished him well and uh, sent a message to uh, the local commander on the other side, giving them good wishes, nothing else. It's important to do this once in a while. Yeah. Good to... You know, build up this spirit once in a while. We are not enemies at all times. As long as they, they behave themselves, as long as they are not doing thing, things which are against your interest, then I think we always remain friends.
0: Uh, a Silly joke. People talk about CBMs, right? CBMs can be continental ballistic missiles or confidence building missiles. Right, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Flag meetings. meetings.
2: We have flag meetings from time to time
0: right so so things <coughs> work that way and well when ceasefires are in place. Yes yes right no so doubt. there is a certain amount of professional respect and absolutely uh, uh, across the line. but when ceasefire is not in effect I can tell you that the
2: flag meetings can be very awkward at times when there have been beaches of ceasefire and a flag meeting has been called and both sides have agreed to come together to a pre-designated spot. you agree to disagree at the end of a flag meeting. No one admits faults, you agree to disagree and have a cup of tea together, shake hands and move back. In many cases, by the time you have moved back, the firing has started. (laughs) At the very spot that you were meeting. Wow. So, these are the kind of ironies that you have
0: in this situation. So, so in all this, how does it work in a career? So, supposing there is an infantry non-commissioned officer or an infantry officer. In a long career, how long might... People get deployed like this. Does it change with time? Is there a greater need, say, in the Chinar core at certain times where the LOC strength gets increased and decreased? Or, you know.
2: No, the strength will only get increased, decreased based upon reinforcement. Hmm. If there's a particular segment of the line of control, like for example, when Udi happened, a vulnerability was realized. That vulnerability always existed. Somehow people in the past did not agree to that. And since this unfortunate incident happened, obviously the line of control got reinforced in that area.
1: Right.
2: Uh, It happens similarly if you have incidents in any other area, you may, you know, reduce from somewhere and add somewhere. Uh, You can't keep bringing additional troops all the time. True. There's a limit to logistics. A lot of this is dictated by logistics. Because the best way of stopping infiltration is to have one man standing at every one meter of the line of control. It's physically impossible. How are you to deploy tactically? How are you, you going to billet him in various inhabits there? How are you going to feed him? How are you going to clothe him? How are you going to give him rest? All this is a part of the LOC management, or the LC management. And it's an amazing thing, this LC management. People who have not in the army, who have not had the experience, have actually missed out a tremendous amount. That brings me to that aspect which you raised. How often does an officer get experience on this? I would say, uh, don't ever quote my example, because I'm one of the rare ones who, the Indian Army, I don't know why, has uh, been so kind to me that I um, started my life in Kargil on the line of control, commanded a company at Pun- Punch in the line of control, commanded a unit in Siachen uh, on, the, on the AGPL, commanded a brigade at Udi on the line of control, commanded a division at Baramula on the line of control, and commanded the corps. Mm-hmm
0: which you looked after. So you've of. had the cushiest career in the Indian army That's ever. <laughs> <laughs> At every rank, yes. you have seen the line of control. Right. But
2: there are lots of officers who have get experience three to four times in their career.
0: And this will be a distress posting and then they yes, go back to... Yes.
2: And my advice to people have always been, uh, with my experience of the line of control, my, experience, my advice to officers of today is, every tenure will add to your thing in such a way if you tend to forget the lessons you have learned the last time, you will live to regret it the next time. You will have a problem the next time. Never forget the lessons. Document them somewhere in your mind or doc- if you don't have a good memory, document them only on your computer or somewhere. Don't miss out the linkages that you've got established with people on the line of control. Your local villages, etc. Somewhere other. Today even I get calls from UDI. 16 years later, I'm getting calls from UDI from people who were working with me there. So. These are, you know, when you live in dangerous times and dangerous places, the bonding and the camaraderie is much
0: higher. Thank you so much. We started talking about um, uh, the security situation in Kashmir and it was, uh, I'm glad you had the time to also demystify certain things about the line of control and help us. You know, we are sitting here in Bangalore, so many hundred thousands thousands of kilometers away. We don't have a sense of what a mountainous border really is. But most of us don't. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you very much. It's been a
2: pleasure talking to you.
0: Thank you for staying with us till the end. If you have any questions or comments, do write in to podcast at thinkpragati.com. And hey, if you like the podcast and listen to us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. It will mean a lot to us. The Pragati podcast is available on the IVM podcast app and pretty much every other podcast app and platform. We are there everywhere.
1: The modern world is obsessed with food and agriculture. Everywhere you look, new and exciting technologies are bringing food innovation to your street market, your grocery store, your doorstep, and your plate. From our quest for the perfect food photos to our rediscovery of ancient grains. Quite simply, food has never been sexier. But guess what? The modern food system is broken. It's a major cause of climate change, antibiotic resistance, and global poverty. So how did we get here, and where are we going? Most importantly, how are we going to feed 10 billion people globally by the year 2050 through better, more sustainable means. I'm Varun Deshpande.
0: And I'm Ramya Ramurthy. And we work for the Good Food Institute, a global non-profit accelerating the transformation to a more healthy, sustainable, and just food system. The next food revolution is here. On Feeding 10 Billion, we're giving you the inside view. You can tune into to us every Tuesday on the IVM Podcast app or ivmpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. How aware do you think you are of your laws and rights? Do you look up to laws when you are caught up in situations? Do you know what your rights are when you are stuck somewhere bad? Well, here's a show that can help you move an inch closer to being aware of what your rights are. Tune in to Know Your Kanoon with me, Ambar Rana. This is a podcast meant to answer all your law-related queries. Catch Know Your Kanun every week on the IBM website or the app or anywhere you get your podcast from.